today's other news, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un announced he is ending a moratorium on nuclear and long-range missile testing. He also said his military will Now, since U.S. President Donald Trump came into office, he has repeatedly bashed NATO allies for not spending enough on defense. The United States has expressed its disappointment and concern over South Korea's decision to withdraw from its military intel-sharing pact with Japan. There is a seemingly endless stream of security-related news coming out of East Asia recently, from North Korean missile tests, to talks of a denuclearized Korean peninsula, to questions about the stability of U.S. alliances with Japan and South Korea. All of this adds up to a seemingly precarious position for Japanese defense. What does Japan consider to be its biggest current security challenges? What impact would a weakened U.S.-Japan alliance have on Japanese defense considerations? How big of a nuclear threat is North Korea? And how might ongoing tensions between South Korea and Japan threaten Northeast Asian stability? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on Japan's security and defense calculations, I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Richard Samuels, Ford International Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center for International Studies at MIT. Dr. Samuels is the author most recently of Special Duty, A History of the Japanese Intelligence Community, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Dr. Samuels, thank you so much for talking with me today. That's a great pleasure. You wrote recently in Foreign Affairs with Eric Hagenbotham about a new military strategy for Japan. So can you outline for us what Japan considers to be some of its biggest security challenges, along with what is Japan's strategy for navigating this instability? Japan faces security challenges on two fronts. Uh, one, the obvious one, which is the rise of China. The second, less obvious one, is the relative decline of the United States. In polite company, one doesn't usually pair the two as security threats to Japan, but it seems to me that the latter is perforce a consequence of the former, and getting the right distance between China and Japan is really the essence of Japan's security challenge today. Everything else seems to me is derivative from that. China, that used to be a quarter of the size of the Japanese economy, a quarter of the size of the Japanese defense spending is now three or four times larger on both of those counts. It has gotten much stronger. It's been able to push the United States away from its immediate perimeter. The commitment and the capabilities of the United States are increasingly being questioned in Japan, and for good reason. Not only because Donald Trump seems not to be enthusiastic in support of U.S. allies, not just in Japan or in Korea, but also in, in Western Europe, but also because the United States is overextended in endless wars in the Middle East in particular. So Japan and Japanese strategists have been thinking for some time now, and quite openly, but more openly and more intensively uh, than we've seen in a long time. They've been thinking about how to deal with these twin threats of the rise of China and the relative decline of the United States. The fact of a nuclear-armed North Korea is an especially difficult problem, but not just for Japan, and we can take that up separately. As you mentioned recently, U.S. President Trump has criticized allies in Western Europe, but also South Korea and Japan for not pulling their weight as far as defense spending goes. Just last month in November, 
President Trump demanded that Tokyo quadruple its support of the 54,000 U.S. troops in Japan from 2 billion to 8 billion U.S. dollars. Do such demands threaten, in your opinion, the stability of the U.S.-Japan alliance? And more broadly, what impact would a weakened U.S.-Japan alliance have on Japanese defense considerations and even Northeast Asian stability more broadly? Well, just to be clear, I don't think there's any question but that Japan's been cheap riding on American security guarantees and has been doing so for decades. I don't think that's much contested. But the question is, for how long and to what extent would the United States continue to judge that the underinvestment in defense on Japan's part is not a threat to U.S. security goals in the region and beyond? And in the form of President Trump, the day when the United States is not willing to make that trade-off seems to be closer than before. You know, the, the rhetoric about the alliance and the stability and the, the cornerstone of stability in the region, all of that, that kind of rhetoric notwithstanding, these demands, they're obviously opening volleys for deal-making, I think is the way to see it, but, but these demands do, I think, indicate that the United States is inclined in, in the Trump administration to deal with its allies in Asia in the way that it's dealt with its allies in Europe. Now, that hasn't led yet to a breakup of NATO. So if past is prologue, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. But I do think that U.S. demand making on the scale that we've seen it is concerning and ought to be concerning to allies in the region. I think it's different in the ROK and in the Republic of Korea than it is in Japan. But in both cases, there's reason why strategists are thinking again about the nature and extent of U.S. capabilities and commitment to providing stability in the region. As we mentioned before, one of the things that Prime Minister Abe has been considering is revising Article 9 and perhaps a more aggressive military stance for Japan. Is instability in the U.S.-Japan alliance something that might encourage the Abe administration to remilitarize Japan, so to speak? And then in turn, wouldn't this remilitarization further destabilize Northeast Asian security? Well, I do think that the United States presence East Asia is a stabilizing influence. On the other hand, I don't think that Japan's defense posture is one of aggression in the region. I think it can be painted as such by neighbors who wish to do so, but that's a political posture on their part. It's, it's not, I think, an accurate estimation, intelligence estimate, if you like, of Japanese capabilities or intentions. I've been keeping track, as some folks know who've read my work or heard my presentations, I've been keeping track of, of how the Japanese government has slowly been unwinding a long list of self-imposed post-war constraints on the conduct of its national security policy. It's, it's, I, I've called it salami slices, taking slices off of the, this is a mixed metaphor for which I apologize, but slices off the path of the smoke that it baked over the course of the early post-war period. Japan had imposed quite a number of constraints upon itself. For example, it had no defense ministry until it did. It ruled out the military use of space until it didn't. Its prime minister won the Nobel Peace Prize for ruling out nuclear weapons until it was clear that the door to nuclear weapons remained open. It ruled out the acquisition and deployment of nuclear weapons until it reinterpreted the Constitution, particularly Article 9, as allowing it. It banned all exports of defense equipment until 
It began to encourage arms sales. It insisted that the Constitution prohibited collective self-defense until the government reinterpreted the Constitution. And the most famous of all is that it limited defense spending to 1% of GDP until they allowed that constraint to expire. So there have been a number of these constraints that have been undone without any change to Article 9 of the Constitution. So in a way, one can say that Article 9 is more symbolic than it is substantive if it provides this much space for Japanese leaders to interpret, reinterpret, and change. Japanese anti-militarism, the anti-militarist sentiment that was the reason for the government to impose these constraints on itself, has not gone away. But on the other hand, the Japanese public is more comfortable with its self-defense forces than at any time in history. Yomiyo Dishibu, the most widely read Japanese newspaper, just completed a survey this week that found that the most trusted institution in Japan uh, was the self-defense force. An enormously uh, high level of public support, and you can compare that with something on the order of 78%. Huge support for self-defense Whereas the support for the Japanese diet was, was unbelievably low. It was 25%. Even if those numbers are off by 20% each, there's still a big gap there. And the question is not whether Japan will become aggressive if it gets rid of Article 9. The point is that Japan is moving in a direction to take better care of itself in the event that the United States abandons or is judged to not be able to make good on its commitment as an alliance partner. So this is, I think, where things are from a Japanese perspective. The alliance is still critical. Japan cannot confront China on its own. Japan cannot confront a nuclear-armed North Korea on its own. It benefits, it thinks, still from uh, extended deterrence provided by the United States. On the other hand, there are questions being raised about what an American first foreign policy might mean for the ability of Japan to maintain its security and stability in the region. I should note, you recently published this book, Special Duty, A History of the Japanese Intelligence Community, published by Cornell University Press. And Japanese intelligence came up in the news just recently when the administration of South Korean President Moon Jae-in briefly announced that South Korea was going to withdraw from an intel-sharing agreement known as the General Security of Military Information Agreement. So can you tell us more about the importance of this and what effects you think there might be if this agreement might collapse and what impact for Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. this might have? So when I mentioned before that Japan and the United States signed the intelligence sharing agreement in 2007, I was referring to the GSOMIA. It was the first one that Japan signed with an allying nation. The United States and Japan had not only shared intelligence, but had run intelligence operations jointly and secretly for parts of the Cold War. But the GSOMIA was different. GSOMIA was a formal information-sharing agreement between the, the intelligence communities in both countries. And the United States has GSOMIA agreements with all of its allies, and it has a very intensive relationship with what's called the Five Eyes, which are the, the Anglo victors of Asia-Pacific War. Australia, Canada, Great Britain, and the United States have a very intensive intelligence-sharing arrangement where they sit cheek by jowl with one another. But GSOMIA is a little different. It's a little bit more arm's length, but it does commit the parties to sharing intelligence. So as soon as Japan signed that with the United States, it then went forward to 
signed Chisomia agreements with a number of other aligned nations, the Italians, the French, the Germans, the Brits, and so forth, with the hope, it seems, that at some point they might be able to find a way, an invitation into uh, an expanded Five Eyes. That notwithstanding, the one country that took the longest for the Japan to reach a Jisomi agreement with was the ROK, South Korea. And uh, the Republic of Korea and Japan didn't come to an agreement on Jisomi until 2016. It was very long gestation and uh, very frustrating to the Americans who clearly, for obvious reasons, would benefit from not having to be the intermediary. You know, it has a Jisomi with Korea, it has a Jisomi with Japan. And then any intelligence from the Japanese would have to go to the Americans, to the Koreans, from the Koreans would have to go to the Americans, to the Japanese. That was inefficient. And the United States was, I think, very pleased when the Japanese and the Koreans finally reached that agreement. But the agreement didn't last very long. And as you mentioned in your, in your question, it almost came undone in November of 2019, after the South Koreans had given the Japanese their 90-day notice back in August. And it was supposed to come undone on November 22nd. And at the 11th hour and 59th minute, they walked it back. And so it still exists. But it doesn't exist in the, in the context of countries that have much trust in one another. The bilateral relationship between the Republic of Korea and the Japanese has really deteriorated in a, in a very dramatic fashion in the past year or so. And, and the intelligence sharing piece of it is just one part. It's an important part. And it's one that I'm glad is still in place, but it's not one that is part of a robust relationship. And so there are real questions about how much and to what extent the sharing will, will proceed until the rest of the relationship is fixed. I wanted to finish by coming back to this topic of North Korea. And you, you mentioned before about North Korean nuclear capabilities. And North Korea was just in the news again recently, warning that it could send missiles over the Japanese islands in the near future, even this week announcing important new missile tests that raise questions about the prospect of a denuclearized Korean peninsula. So in your opinion, how big of a threat is a nuclear-capable North Korea to Japan? And how might a fully nuclear-capable North Korea destabilize security considerations for all of Northeast Asia? It's an enormous no question about it. What proliferation to a regime like North Korea that has been a proliferator itself is never welcome. But the nature of the threat differs, whether you're the United States, say, or Japan. And the reason it differs is that the United States, in the form of President Trump, has been openly worried much more about intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBM, that could touch American territory than shorter and medium-range missiles that could touch Japan, just despite the fact that the United States has plenty of troops in Japan and, and the home port for the Seventh Fleet. The fact that the President of the United States could ignore Security Council restrictions on North Korean tests, poo-poo them at a time when they are a direct threat, they not only violate the United Nations restrictions, but that they are a direct threat uh, to Japan, is something that has certainly gotten Japan's attention. You'll notice that when we were in that early stage, uh, before the love affair self-proclaimed between Trump and Kim began and, and led to the, the Singapore summit in 2018, and before then, the fire and fury, dotard kind of rocket man rhetoric that characterized the language coming from the White House and from North Korea was supported by Japan. Japan was alone among American allies in supporting President Trump's very 
vigorous anti-North Korean rhetoric. And when it looked like the United States and North Korea were coming closer to, to an agreement on ICBM that might leave out Japan, they were the first to remind the United States that there were these UN sanctions and UN taboos that were placed upon North Korea. So there are very different perspectives on a, a nuclear-armed North Korea. The interesting thing in this Yomiuri poll that I mentioned earlier was the realism within the Japanese public. The Japanese respondents to this public opinion survey that was conducted in late November, early December of 2019, the number of Japanese who said that they did not believe that there was any path toward denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula was extremely high, suggesting that the Japanese public has now factored into its calculations the expectation that they have a nuclear-armed North Korea uh, on its border. And that changes the way in which I think countries have to engage and deal with, with North Korea. It's not something that's made its way yet into the rhetoric coming out of the U.S. White House. But it, it is something that is very concerning and, and potentially extremely destabilizing. I'm Tristan Grunow, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Grunow of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.